Thank you, Mark. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon, it is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, the Elium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, it is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. All right, so God has made this man, and we've just seen this intimate creation and this beauty of this involvement of God with man, and then he's got to put him somewhere. And you think about the vastness of this universe, and think about some of the planets that we've been able to see with the Hubble telescope. There's some beautiful places out there. But God creates this special garden, and he gives this garden a name. We got the word Eden here, and we don't, we're not uh, Jews, so we don't know what that word means. When the Jews read this, they read the Garden of Paradise, the Garden of Plenty, the Garden of All Goodness. That's kind of what this word means. We know that's what Eden means, but if we could hear this in the original and hear it the way they hear it, we'd just be thinking of all things that are beautiful and good. So God not only made this universe the way he made it, he made a special garden that is just above everything else he had made. And he put it specifically to place the man there. So he's put the man in the Garden of Eden, and he gives us a bit of a description about it. And I like uh, the details in this description. He's made all these trees grow out uh, of the ground that are pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now think about that for a minute. <laughs> we know what a tree good for food is good for, and we see that he's given them the trees to eat and the herbs to eat. What in the world is the purpose of a tree that's pleasant to the sight? Is there a purpose for that? Shade. Certainly shade could be part of it, but... What else? It doesn't say a shade tree that's pleasant to the sight. I mean, you can say that. What's that? Something to look at. Something pleasant to see. Something pleasant to look at, yeah. You ever seen a sunset? Pretty ugly, huh? <laughs> what if God had just said, it's light, 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 dark? <laughs> could have done that. You know, he divided light and dark. It could have just been, all of a sudden it's dark. But sunsets are beautiful. And people pay money to take cruises or go to the ocean or whatever to be able to see a sunset or go up in a mountain and see a sunset in all of its beauty. <clears throat> Why would God make things like that? You know, when I was an atheist, one of the problems that I had with atheism is the problem of beauty. It's a real issue. <laughs> Why does beauty exist if all this is is just random garbage? You know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, but almost every beholder says a sunset's beautiful. <laughs> you know, is there anybody that says that's ugly? I was joking when I said it before. You know, um, no. Aesthetics. Only man can appreciate aesthetics. Thank you. So we're getting to the heart of this matter. God put trees in the garden that were just there so we could look at them and go, wow. <laughs> and as I said before, I look up at the stars, I'd say, you know, my dad made that. A friend of mine really had that custom. He would look at sunsets and he would, he would turn and say, yeah, our father made that. Look at that. It's just a manifestation of God's goodness. Beauty is a manifestation of God's goodness. Isn't it interesting that sometimes we'll see the psalmist talk about worshiping God in the beauty of holiness? Isn't that interesting? Beauty would not exist if God were not good. It's part of his goodness. It's just an extension of that. We see a glimpse of that in the, in the garden here. Now, we're told that there's trees that are good to eat, trees that are pleasant to the sight. There's also these two other specific trees mentioned here, the tree of life 
and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right now, they're just mentioned. We'll see where they come into play a little bit later on in the text. But they're there. God has put all of these things in this garden. Then we begin to get a description of how he's going to water this garden without rain again. Remember, rain's still got a purpose later on. There's no rain, but there's these wonderful rivers going all out through the garden here, and they branch off and circle the whole place and these four rivers that go out. But it's what detail we're given in some of these lands where the rivers go that I think is interesting. Look at verse 11, for example. The rivers split and Pishon goes out to the land that skirts Havilah. What are we told about Havilah? Gold. There's gold there. Verse 12, it's good gold. Is there, is there bad gold? Uh, I guess there's impure gold. That's the idea here. This is pure gold. Okay, so there's gold in the Garden of Eden. Neat. Um, what's so special about gold? Don't think biblically yet. We'll think there in a minute. What's so special about gold? Well, it could be food or something from the trees that you could eat. Don't necessarily have to be actually gold in the ground. We're talking about the element here, the metal, gold. Okay. Yeah. Why is it valuable? Because it's rare in part. Only because it looks good. It's shiny. Oh, gold. Easy to the side. You know, people don't just walk around with whatever rusty kind of piece of metal hanging off their neck. They put gold. Things that won't tarnish. Things that are pleasant to the sight. So again, we get an aspect of God's beauty here. The rarity is what makes gold cost so much, but it costs so much because it's rare and people want it. There's other stuff that's rare that nobody really wants. It's very that, but this is something we want. So God has put gold in the garden, and it's another aspect of his beauty, but I think we're going to see there's something more in just a second. I know the, three, the wise men brought <laughs> gold when they came to, when Christ was born, they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and uh -huh. each one of those has a specific meaning. Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? Because there's two other things mentioned here besides gold. What else is mentioned? And you're getting to the point. Look at verse 12. What else is there? Uh, oh, the precious gems. You got the onyx stone, and what is bdellium? I, I admit I had to look that one up. <laughs> Even in Portuguese, I couldn't figure it out. You know what bdellium is? Frankincense. <laughs> it's an old-timey word for frankincense. Now, isn't that interesting that at least two of Jesus' gifts, gold and frankincense, were right there in the garden? I don't, I'm not sure what myrrh was, some kind of a salve, or some kind of a, uh, a med medication. It's for but, embalming. And, yeah, for embalming. They used it later on. But it was something that smelled good as well. So, but at least you've got gold, and you've got frankincense, and you've got the onyx stone. Now, think about those three things. And here we're going to start getting into some of the symbology that comes out of the book of Genesis. Where do we run into those three specific things again? Good gold, pure gold, the onyx stone, and incense. Are they in the gates? In the temple in the New Testament, in the, in the, the holy temple, yeah, we see those things. I don't think we get the incense except maybe in the censers that the angels have when they throw the response of God down on the earth. But why is that in that image then in Revelation? Where does that mean those things were originally? You said over here, right? In the, they were in the Garden of Eden. The book of Revelation is bringing us back to the Garden of Eden and this temple paradise now. That's where the presence of God is, is in the temple. But I've just given away the real answer. When they built the tabernacle, what did they build that out of? What, are they, what is all the furniture made out of? Oh, gold. Good gold, gold. Purified gold. Yes. Okay. The high priest, when he would go in before God, what did he have on his shoulders? You remember? Onyx stones that were engraved with the names of all the tribes. And what was threaded all through his clothing? 
gold was threaded through there. What did he take with him when he went in? Incense. incense. He couldn't even go in before the incense. You know what? This is a reflection of these three things we're seeing here. They were here naturally occurring, but why mention them? Why just these three things? There's a lot of other stuff in the garden. Because later on, when they had access to God through the temple, they were being brought back in to the presence of Eden. <laughs> yes. Amen. Doesn't that make your head kind of go, woo? <laughs> there are all kinds of really cool details and symbols that are in the book of Genesis that just naturally occur that later through the Bible we picked up on. A good Jew reading this will think, I, just, I don't know where that's from. <laughs> that's from in paradise. And so this tabernacle we have is, is the aspect of paradise among us because that's where God is with us. He's brought us near to paradise. Now, we don't need a high priest in the same sense the Jews did now. We've been brought right in, right behind the veil through Christ. We have access to the paradise. That's what Revelation is talking about. That's where we stand in the presence of God is an image of the Garden of Eden. It's amazing. You've got the tree of life there again, don't you? The river coming out from under the throne. All these images that come right from the Garden of Eden. If you know Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, you'll start seeing them all through the Bible. And there's some more things probably tomorrow we'll get to in Genesis 3 that'll just blow your mind. Yeah. Something that kind of uh, blows my mind is that God is not afraid to mention names, places, events that can be easily proved or yes. disproved. Yeah. Or can, you know, can be disproved. I mean, you know, he's bold enough to make those claims. It's up to man to figure it out. Amen. Actually yeah, we can actually pinpoint where the Garden of Eden must have been. You know, for a long time I struggled with that because, well, the flood comes later and goes away with all these things. I think, well, no, this was written after the flood. So these are places they knew about after the flood, and he says this is where the Garden was. So we really roughly where, uh, I can't think of the name of the country now, uh, Babylon later, and then where, where the crazy stuff's going on. This is where Iraq and Iran, all the, that area over there is really where the Garden of Eden would have been. And look. What happened when they disobeyed and were cast out of the garden? Look what's going on over in that area. Now, I know there's, we're not, I'm not going to get too symbolic and political with what the Bible's teaching, but if there is a lesson about rebellion against God, look at what's going on over in that part of the world and has been now for centuries since they rebelled against this image we have here of order that God had given them. It, it's dire, and it's much worse uh, in the eternal realm because uh, that's, that's not hell over there. <laughs> That's just something terrible that's happening right now, and it's going to be over with before, you know, too, too long. But hell's eternal. So there's, there's a terrible parallel with that. So you've got this beauty given here in the garden, and you've got these little tidbits of this paradise that are going to be carried through symbolically through the rest of the Bible, and just this connection with Eden all through. You know, God has put them in this perfectly formed garden. When he brings Israel into the promised land, doesn't he say, you didn't plant these vineyards, you didn't build these homes, but they're yours. It's, a, it's an aspect of Eden. He's putting them in a place that he's pre-prepared and says, you just keep it up. You tend and keep it. <laughs> you didn't have to till it. You just tend and keep it. And so as he gives us the rest in Christ, I go to prepare a place for you. You're not going to prepare it, but when you get there, you'll need to, to keep yourself there. <laughs> it's amazing. All these great parallels with, with what Eden brings out. All right, so let's look at verses 15 through 17 now. Here comes the moment. God is going to deliver his first um, specific commands. He's already said be fruitful and multiply. That's really the first command in the Bible. But he's going to give some commands that regard their life in the garden. And let's see uh, this text that becomes the, the crucial moment of the, of the Old Testament, really. 15 through 17. I'll take it. Thank you, Josh. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, 
On every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So, I appreciate the way Josh read that, and we hadn't picked up on that uh, up to this point. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. I don't know if you noticed, but up through verse 3 of chapter 2, it was always uh, then God, then God, in the beginning God. Verse 4 of chapter 2 begins to say, the Lord God. That's when we begin to get the God of the covenant. Well, the difference there is now we have people, <laughs> and God can begin to have a relationship and a covenant with them. And so the, it, the term changes how we address God in the Bible already up to there. So the Lord God has taken the man, he puts him in the garden, and he gives him a purpose. I want you to tend and keep this garden. Now, he didn't say, I want you to till it. I don't want you to, it's not that he's got him doing all this hard work. He's just maintaining what God has put there. This is much different than what we're going to see later after the sin when he has to work in the sweat of his face. Right now, he's just keeping things up that God put there. And he gives him a command. And he really gives him two commands here. He's going to give him a very generic command in verse 16 and a specific command in verse 17. We talk sometimes about generics and specifics. We're talking about authority. And it's interesting to watch how God did that from the beginning here. What is the generic command? Verse 16. Really eat from any tree. What a blessing. See all this? It's yours. Go eat it. <laughs> Every tree of the garden you can freely eat from. Does that sound restrictive? No. <laughs> that is absolute freedom. Freely eat is the word he used. Go eat. However, verse 17, there's a specific command. What's the specific command? And even the knowledge of good and evil. There is a tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that. And something that you'll notice all through the Bible, when there's a generic command, typically it's fulfillable in any way that meets what the command is saying. And there's not typically any kind of a consequence for not meeting it. It's usually uh, commands that can be fulfilled in any way. But when there's a specific command, and God says this do or this do not do, Almost always there is then a consequence for not doing or for doing what shouldn't be done. When God is specific, he says, it must be done only this way, and here's what happens if it's not. What happens if they don't do it the way he says, or if they do what they shouldn't do? You will die. Now think about this for just a moment. Is what God said here difficult to understand in terms of what he's asking, telling the man to do or not do? Yeah, 16 says that... Um command a man saying saying of every tree of the garden thou shalt may, um, mayest freely eat. Mm -hmm. But then he goes on to say you can't eat from the tree of good and evil. Yes. So which one of these trees is good or, and evil? They obviously know which one it is. If God's able to point it out and tell them not to, they know which one it is. Eve later will know which one it is. He says very clearly. Yeah. It seems to refer them as two trees. Here's yes. the tree of, of, of life, and here's the tree of good and evil. I mean, I, I don't see a plurality there. There are two trees, a, a life, one of life and one of good and evil. Right, right. That's the tree of life is yes. a tree, but the other tree, singular. Oh, yes, there's not, there's not a tree of good and a tree it, of evil. There, yeah, there's, there's, no, there's no plurality. It's a singular tree that has the knowledge is available of both good and evil on this tree. That's the point. It's a tree of knowledge, really. But the knowledge is of good and evil. And we'll talk about what that means in a little bit. So the, really other, cool. the other tree of evil could be the one where you said that you was an atheist at one time. So would that be the way it would be? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is one thing. There's not we're not looking at two trees here. And so if they eat from the knowledge of good and evil, they're going to get the knowledge of both of those things. We'll talk about that in a little bit about what, what that really means. Um, 
And so hold your question for just a minute until we get there, and then we'll come back and see if we if we hit where you're where you're going with that. Okay. Um, so he said, though, if they eat from that tree, they will die. So what I'm asking is, is that a hard command to understand? No. no. So is God testing man's intelligence? Yes. You think so? No. What is he testing here? Is intelligence? He gives such a simple command. I ask that because so often when I sit down to study the Bible with somebody, they'll say, you know, you can't understand the Bible. It contradicts itself. It's full of these details that are t terrible to understand. You know, in, by and large, the Bible is easy to understand. What I usually tell people when they say you can't understand the Bible is say, yeah, you can. You don't want to. <laughs> you don't want to do what it says. <laughs> That's the reason you say you can't understand it. Because all of a sudden, it's like my kids. We say, would you go cut the grass? Huh? I didn't understand you. Well, what'd you say? Uh, go pick up your room. Huh? All of a sudden, they're deaf and can't understand simple instructions. Uh, that's what we do with the Bible sometimes. God is really clear. Now, I admit there's a few things that are difficult. It's not The Bible's not absolutely easy. But as we mature and study the Bible, those things even become easier to, to get into. The problem is we often just dismiss it before we get started. I like to go to Mark chapter 4 where Jesus is telling parables, and it says he told them in such a way that the hearers could understand it. That's why he told the parables. He wanted fishermen to understand about fishing. So he said, let's be fishers of men. They know about fishing, so let's make a spiritual application of that. So people that know how to plant a spiritual application about planting, let's throw seed on men's hearts. <laughs> See what we something grows there. Yeah. You you would almost think that all an all powerful being would find some way to communicate with his creation. Amen. You, you and has done so in a very clear way. But the creation says, You don't exist, so why should I listen to what you say? <laughs> I'll do it my way. When you even think about some of the more confusing parts of the Bible, so you think about the law. Well the law is super confusing. But you get to the end of Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy thirty, and Moses kind of sums it up in pretty in a pretty simple way, he says, Look. I've set before you two things, life or death, yeah. right? and it's literal translations, good and evil, yeah. and pick one. The same thing here, I mean, like you, it, it's good and evil. You, you pick whether you're going to obey God or you're not going to obey God, but the instructions aren't as complicated as we think they are. Exactly. But we don't want to find out what God really has to say. I had a friend that I, I was trying to study with, and he said, you know, I'm fine right now. If you keep telling me more what the Bible says, then I'm going to be responsible. Just God, God's going to judge me. He can't judge me right now because I don't know. And I said, it's worse than that. <laughs> Yes, he can. <laughs> he gave you the rules and you throw them away, then he's going to judge you either way. <laughs> you better make sure you know what he's laid out for you. And it's not hard. It's right here. But the problem is we don't want to do it. We don't want to be, be held by it. Bertrand Russell recently, uh, well, I don't know how recent it was, how long he's been dead, but I saw, I heard an interview recently with someone who had had an interview with him. And he was asking him why he was an atheist. And then they've come up with all the atheist tenets and said Bertrand Russell and a bunch of these uh, other uh, European uh, philosophers and he said the reason that we postulated the possibility that God does not exist is because we wanted sexual freedom. And Bertrand Russell and others, a few others that were in his circle were homosexuals. They said, you know, the Bible tells us that we can't exercise sexual freedom. And so we threw that out. And then we began to postulate how the universe came to exist without God. And that's where we got these theories. And that's why we believe God doesn't exist. But he admitted that it all started with what he didn't want to believe what God was saying. So he threw God out and then tried to figure out another way. That's what most of us do on some level. I don't believe God would ask me to do that or would tell me I can't do this. So I'm throwing that out. I'll figure it out another way. And then if God can fit into that later, I'll bring him back in somehow. It doesn't work. The worldview must start with the creator, not later on and see if somehow he can create the world I've now messed up. It doesn't work that way. So he's put them there. He's given them a generic command, eat freely. And that really is what he wants them to do. He just wants them to be careful not to eat from this one tree. Now, he could have said, you eat from this tree, and this tree, and 
this tree and this tree and this tree. And some people say the Bible should be written that way. We know every single thing that we can possibly do, but God works well with generics. Go preach. <laughs> a car, on foot, by airplane, on horseback. Well, that just made it so much easier when he just said, go preach. He did say, go preach the gospel. So I can't go preach, you know, health and wealth or whatever these other things that people like to go out preaching. But if I go preach the gospel, I can do it in whatever way is convenient. That's why we call them conveniences uh, or expedience. Whatever way is expedient to get that done, I can do that. But when he says something very specific, like go preach the gospel, I don't have any other options. I have to preach the gospel. He's told me what that is. So we need to understand. And he says if you don't do that, then men will be lost. You'll be lost. It's pretty easy. The consequences for disobeying a, a, a specific command. But the point is here, he's not trying to test the man's intelligence. He didn't make this hard to understand. Eat all these trees, that one tree don't eat. That's easy to understand. So what is he testing? If not intelligence, what's he testing? Self-control. Self-control, what's another word we might use for that? Obedience. Obedience, yeah. If God said, I'm telling you to do this, you do it, you made the choice, you disobeyed. He's testing obedience. In fact, his whole Bible will test whether or not we love God enough to obey him. That's all it does. He said, this is what I've done for you. This is how intimate I want to be with you. Do you want that from me? Will you obey what I'm telling you to do so that that can be possible? That's it. It's just a test of our love and obedience of God. If we are unloving, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. What does it mean if you don't keep them? I guess I don't love him. In the end, sometimes I have to come to terms with that. I'm not acting like someone who loves the Lord. I haven't kept his commands. It's really simple the way God lays it out. So he's testing man's love and obedience. So he says, if you eat of that tree, in that day you'll surely die. Certainly, Adam and Eve uh, don't, don't even know what death is at this point. They've never experienced that. I think that helps us also. We don't need to experience everything the Bible says to then be able to say, I don't want to do that. Some people bring that argument up. I'm going to go use cocaine for a week or two and see if it's really good or bad. We don't need to do that. <laughs> You can tell by other people's experience. That's called wisdom. That's what Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are about. Learn from my mistakes. Don't do that. <laughs> because God will tell you how to avoid all this extra pain and agony you're bringing on yourself. Just do the right thing from the beginning. You don't have to go experiment with all that. So God is saying, it's bad. Don't do it. You will die from it. It'll kill you. Whether they know what that means or not, they understand it's pretty rough. And we'll see by their reaction, they had a good idea that it wasn't going to be something God was going to be pleased with. All right, so verses 18 through 25. We'll finish out chapter 2, and we may have to call that quick, so there's a lot to see in this next section. Any comments or questions, though, before we get through, uh, before we start in the next section here of 1825? All right, somebody read for us this last section of chapter 2, 1825. Carl, what, what would have sure. been their concept of death? So whenever they hear, you surely would have died. That what, what I don't know that they had a way to conceive of that. Um, what we'll talk about in chapter 3 a little bit is this question of separation. They'd be separated from God. And I don't know how much they would have understood that, but they certainly separated themselves from God once they mm -hmm. said And so they understood something was not right. Okay. Uh, verses uh, 18 through 25, please. Thank you. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to the every bird, beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept he took one of his, own, one of his ribs 
and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken and from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Okay, so the Lord says something that should be a little bit shocking. If we've just read straight through this text, instead of stopping and pausing so much, we've been hearing, it is good, it is good, it is very good. And then the Lord God said, it is not good. Wait a second. Now, that's, that should take us back a little bit. How is it possible that the Lord would say it is not good? What is not good? Naked. Well, being naked was okay at this point. At the, at the end, but what he said in verse 18 is it's not good that man should be alone. Now, when did he say that? That becomes the question. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. It's not good for him to be alone. So, go ahead, Monica. He said... Go forth and multiply. This is just a man. I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, can't do this by yourself. That's true. So that should help us a little bit with our context. Where are we in the story from chapter 1 when we get to verse 18? Because most of the time, what we've been taught from being kids and what we often think about is, here's poor Adam alone in the garden. He's been there now for years and years, and he's seeing the two rabbits that have children, and he's seeing the, the male deer and the doe come along, and he's, well, how come I don't have one? And he's had all this time to be lonely, and he cries out to God, you know, can you make me uh, something special uh, like all the animals had? Uh, there's a joke about that where uh, <laughs> he says, I'd like something beautiful, something that'll complete me, and how much would that cost? And God says, I'd be an arm and a leg. And he says, well, what can I get for a rib? <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> so, but at any rate... <laughs> There is this, this image we have, this concept of this lonely Adam calling out to God for some help. Now, I believe women are much more valuable than men, obviously. But uh, that's the joke. Um, so, <laughs> that's not really what the Bible says, though. The Bible doesn't say Adam was lonely, and then God looked down and said, poor, poor Adam, I'll make him a helper. God, in his wisdom, said, it's not good that man should be alone. When did he say that, though? What can we tell from the context here that must be when he said that? Somewhere on day number six. Yeah, he didn't find a suitable help. We'll look at that. He's going to allow Adam to be a part of the process. Remember we said that Adam will work together with God? He's actually going to be part of this process in finding a suitable helper. It'll be on the sixth day, though. It's not this long time period where he's lonely. It's where he realizes why he needs a helper. And God's going to help him realize that really quickly halfway through the sixth day. So, you know, in the way the Jews are counting time here, he may have made the animals during the nighttime. It was, it was the sixth day already once the sun went down from the fifth. He may have made the animals. Then the sun comes up. There's Adam. He doesn't have a helper comparable. God begins to bring the animals. You'll see the tense on the verbs here is God brought the animals he had made before Adam. It's not that he then made the animals to see if Adam would like them. He had the animals made. He began to bring them before Adam. And what's interesting here is this is certainly on the sixth day. Because we saw that God made man and woman in his image. Sorry about that. God made man and woman in his image, both of them, and told them to be fruitful and multiply before it was finished, and then said, it is very good. Go ahead. It, it would have to be in one twenty-seven, as he mm -hmm. uh, created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So yes. It has to be right. So that. we're on the sixth day still. Yeah. And I just want us to understand, because even in this... This fairy tale image we've got, we, we begin to think this is sometime afterward. God in his wisdom said it's not good that man should be alone. It's not something that man said, it's not good to be alone, let's go ahead and get married. And I say that because of where marriage is now in our, in our worldview. 
Marriage has been made into something that man created that was a result of what man thought he needed. And so man makes it to be whatever he thinks will, will work for him. God designed marriage, and he designed it before there was ever a need for it. So God in his wisdom said it's not good for man to be alone. So what was he going to do in order that man shouldn't be alone? In the end of verse 18 still, what did he decide to do so that man wouldn't be alone? Make a helper. Make a helper comparable or fit or measured out is really the, the word here. So there's two aspects here. The one he's going to make, is that going to be his ruler? No. It's going to be his helper. From the beginning, woman was made with a purpose to be the helper or the man. Now, this is not popular. This is not what people want to hear today. <laughs> but it's what the Bible teaches. And I just want to show what the Bible teaches. Now, we can argue about what that means later. But the Bible teaches that God designed woman with a purpose to be the man's helper. And therefore, she should be subservient, always stepped on and walked over and not have any value. No, because the very next word is measured up to, comparable, in some way fit for the work that's being done. She has value. If you go back to Genesis 1.27, she's also made in God's image, just like the man is. I'll even go a step further. What was Eve doing when she offered the fruit to Adam? She wasn't helping. No, she was almost <laughs> taking on the role as being the provider and the nurse. And we'll see how God will, will work on that in chapter 3. But as you said, that is not popular. It's not at all popular. Yeah, it's in fact, it's very unpopular. And uh, it's amazing. I love to do this study. And I usually like to take my wife with me on the end of Genesis chapter 2. And I'll ask people, does she look like she's in fear of me? Does she look like she's got shackles on her and she's having to respond to her? And she'll come and say, you know, this is what God has taught. This is, this is what I believe. This is the way we're living. I had a lady call one time to offer a credit card for my wife while I was in Brazil. And I answered the phone and she said, can I speak to your wife? And I said, well, I'm the man. I, I make the decisions about money here. Can I help you with, the, with the, the question? And she said, no, it has to be with your wife. I said, well, she's not interested in your credit card. Uh, and she said, well, have you got her chained up in the basement? What are you, a slave driver? And she started to cuss me out on the phone. And I asked to speak with her manager, and she hung up. I told her, I'll go get my wife, and you can talk to her. I said, no, I'm a servant of God, and we understand that our roles are different, and I'm doing fulfilling the role of the one who provides for the home, and I take care of the money issues. And so I'm telling you she doesn't want your credit card. But, I mean, she was mad and really just ran me the, the right act up and down. And... I, when I, by the time I got my wife to the phone and asked to speak with our manager, she hung up. But I was amazed that someone would call me and then berate me for, for what we, the way we're running our home. It's not popular at all, but it's what God teaches. And we really need to understand if God is good, we've seen that he is. If he's a God of order, we've seen that he is. If he's a God that has enacted these things for our benefit, we've seen that he does that. We've got to change. We can't expect him to change. He's helping us. We've got to change what our view is about these things. So woman was made from the beginning to be a helper to man. Now, think about that for just a minute. What did Jesus say he was going to do when he went back to, the, to God, back to heaven? Send the Spirit who would be the helper. He's going to send the helper. Does that mean the Holy Spirit is subservient in some way to Jesus and should be despised and walked on? No. And you know what? It's interesting. In, in Luke chapter 2, Simeon said, I've seen the helper of Israel. That's really what Jesus was called. He was the one that was called the paraclete. That's why he said, I'll send another helper to come along when he talked about the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, and it starts in Genesis, because of this promise that one of the sons of Eve would be the one to help them with the serpent, look at what Lamech called his son, Noah. His name means rest. He'll give us rest from all this hard labor we're doing in this ground which the Lord has cursed. That's in Genesis chapter 5. They're thinking of that promise. 
And his word is the same word that's used about Jesus as helper when Simeon makes that prophecy in Luke chapter 2 when he says, I've seen the helper of the Lord. I've seen the consolation is the little word he uses of Israel. That's the word that's, that Jesus used when it's not, I'll send the other helper. He uses, I'll send another consolation. So the point of all this I'm trying to get to is just because their roles are different and one is to console or help or exhort the other in, in this sense doesn't mean that there's less value. Jesus is not less valuable than God the Father. The Spirit is not less valuable than Jesus. They all have equality in terms of deity. Their roles are different. And men and women have different roles. Same value before God. And we need to understand, in fact, we should uphold how valuable women's roles really are. I think we're tempted in our society to say, she's just a homemaker. Or she just raised the kids. No. She is a homemaker. She has raised our children. Where do the next generation of elders and evangelists and Christians come from? From good mothers raising children the way they should. That's a very valuable role, and I wouldn't trust it with anybody else but my wife uh, to do the role that she does in our home. That's what we need. So he's made the woman to be the help. This is his response to this need that he sees that Adam's going to have. He wants to make a helper comparable. He brings all the animals then, and... You know, think about this. If we're God in this situation and we're wanting to make someone to help Adam, thinking like a man, what do you think the first thing you would make would be to help Adam in this work he's got to do in the garden? You think you might come up with it. You're not God. You're thinking more like a man. What do you think Adam's going to need help with? Well, he's got hard work to do in the garden. You might make another man. Wouldn't that be something you'd contemplate? Just send another man down there to help him carry stuff around, help him till, you know, somebody to grow up with. But that's not what God meant. He brought the animals to Adam, and Adam soon learned by the end of verse, nine, uh, by the verse 20, there's not a helper comparable. He's given names to all these animals. And I kind of imagine this scene. Now think about how good a bear would be at, at moving stuff around an elephant in his trunk, you know, knocking trees out of the way or something. You're trying to get things set up in the garden. God's bringing the animals along, and Adam sees the animals and gives them names. Up to this point, that's something we've only seen God doing, giving names to the earth, to the day, to the night, to the stars, the sun, the moon. Now, Adam's doing that. It's a part of his aspect of being in the image of God. He's giving names to all these animals. And I don't know what the Hebrew words really mean, but you might think of, he sees a bee come by, and he may say something like pollinator. <laughs> you know, that's a pollinator. He's going to go pollinize those trees. He may see a bird come by and say seed spreader or something. You know, he's giving names that have something to do with what they do. But he never found one that was comparable, one that was a helper in the truest sense to him. And so in that sense, he has participated. And now he understands how much he really needs a comparable helper. Hasn't necessitated loneliness for a long period of time, but simply looking at everything else that's there and saying, this doesn't work for me. This is not what I need. So at that point, he's going to be ready to receive the woman that God's going to make. So then verse 20, uh, verse 21, what does God do? <laughs> I love this verse. What does that look like? Surgery. God performs the first surgery, puts the man to sleep, cuts him open, takes something out, closes him back up. He's the first surgeon in the Bible, is God. And it's, just, it's exactly what we see here. He's caused this deep sleep to fall on. He takes a rib out and closes it up, and from the rib he makes a woman. Think about that for a second. Why a rib? <laughs> Why would God have chosen a rib to make the woman from? I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but it's interesting to think about it. Close to his heart. Close to his heart, and I think you're you're hitting at a good spot there. It's side by side. Side by side, yeah. You get a lot of them. Got enough of them, you can spare one. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. I hadn't thought about that one. Uh, um, you know, popular thought is, is are these these ideas 
when I got married, the, the person that did our ceremony at the Justice of Peace, we got married there first and had a, a ceremony later on with our friends, but uh, she said she wasn't taken from a bone from the head so she wouldn't feel superior. Wasn't a metatarsal from the foot, so she wouldn't feel like she was sent on. She was taken from a rib, so she'd feel like she was side by side with him. You know, that's kind of poignant and, and beautiful to think about. But what is the purpose of a rib? Think about that for a minute. I guess it's because it's bone, and, and it's just, you know, if you like to lean together, you know, you got rib to rib. and yeah, there is that. I think there's that aspect, that familiar aspect. But what's a rib's purpose? Maybe I'm protecting it down to protect your lung or where the spirit is. Protect your vital organs. Your ribs go around your heart, lungs, somewhat around your kidneys. Not really enough for a lot of people. But they protect your vital organs. Isn't that what a woman's role is? <laughs> Didn't she protect the vitality of her husband? Well, the church talks about the idea that we would not hurt our own flesh. Certainly. So, I mean, maybe there's a point in that. That image is taken from what happens here in Genesis, for sure. And it's interesting, any of the marriage uh, ideas or teaching you find later in the Bible, will all harken back to Genesis 2, all of it, every one of them. This is God's plan for marriage, and he makes it very plain through the rest of the Bible. But this idea that the function of ribs is to, is to protect the vital organs. Uh, Proverb 31, the proverb about women. <laughs> Uh, about the virtuous woman. It's interesting some of the things that are said there. The heart of her husband safely trusts her. <laughs> yes, his heart is protected by the ribs around her. Her husband's known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Her husband praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. She is protecting his vitality. She's made it so that he's not worried about what's going on in the home. He can be sitting at the gate with the elders, being a judge in the city. He's respected among the men because of his wife. Now, how many men had a wife that made them where they weren't respected? <laughs> Even David. <laughs> and certainly men like, uh, like Ahab. <laughs> their wives made them so they were disrespectful. They couldn't trust safely in their wives. What a blessing a marriage in the Lord is. You know, If I wasn't able to bring my family this time, I knew I could come here by myself and do this kind of a study. And she would be at home taking care of the children. It would just be her. There'd be no visitors there. They would, and she's not worried that I'm out, uh, you know, trying to meet other women or something like that. We, tr we trust each other in the Lord. She makes it so I can actually do the work that I do. I couldn't do what I do if it were not for a faithful wife doing what she's doing. What a blessing. <laughs> and so I'm able to travel to Brazil and other places. And even if she can't go with me, we safely trust one another because the Lord has made this union. She has a protection for my vitality in, in the work that I do. And then in Ephesians 5, we see the man protects her. It's, it's, a, it's a dichotomous relationship. It is the way God has designed it. But I think it's beautiful to think about. I can't, like I said, I can't be dogmatic. The Bible doesn't say, pick her from a rib so she protects your vital organ. But that is an image we get in other places in the Bible. Uh, the ribs are for that uh, purpose. Look at verse 22 now. God has made the woman. What does he do with her? Brought her before the man. Brought her to the man. And what does the man then do? I love this in English. He says, whoa, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's just what I was looking for. He names um, her, basically. What's that? Name, he names, he her. names her. Same thing he did with all the animals. So is she just an animal? It was a woman who pointed this text out to me, which is really awesome. What name did he give her? His name. In every language I've read this in, he gives her his name. 
In, in Portuguese, it's from varão to varoa. In English, it's man to woman. In other languages that I've read this in, it's some aspect of his own name. Do you know we still do that today? When I took her to be my wife, she didn't take my best friend's last name. She took mine. I'm glad for that. You know, typically, we'll, the wife will take on the husband's name. Now, that's changing because of what we've done to marriage. But there's a vestige of that aspect that she is taking on my name. Adam said, yes, she's like me. This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. She has my name because she was taken from me. This is the completion of what I'm looking for. She's like me. I love that, uh, that, that Adam did. So he says that, and then look at verse 24. This verse confused me for so long. Who says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? Yeah, Moses is writing that here, but who would have spoken those words? Yeah, Moses is probably the, the closest. It's not Adam. And for the longest time, in fact, the first Bible I had had put it together like it's in the same quote. It looked like it was coming from Adam. And I'm thinking, how does he know about a man's father and mother? He didn't have one. How does he know about all this stuff? This is God's commentary on marriage. And Moses is the one who wrote it down, but it's God's words. God looked at the first marriage and he said therefore every other one will be this way every other one it's the only pattern god has given <laughs> he doesn't say a man will leave his father and mother be married to his wives or he doesn't say the woman will leave and be married to her husbands he doesn't give any other kind of possible relationship except man and wife one and one and those two will become one flesh and he talks later about the the terribleness of involving other people in that relationship or doing it in some other way this is what God has sanctioned. And the fact that he sanctioned it here is he says, here forward, this is the way marriage will be. Nothing else. They'll become one flesh. And so he's looking at this unity of the two, and he even gives an example of it in verse 25. They're in the garden together. They have no clothing, but they're an extension of each other. There's nothing to be ashamed of yet in that. And we'll see that that'll be one of the first things that'll change once sin comes in. There's shame before one another when you're exposed before one another. What I think is interesting about that is that at this point, there's just this couple. That's the only people that exist in the earth. Even before God, there's no shame in their nakedness. But it won't be long when sin enters in that they'll be covered even in the, in the presence of God. God who made them will require that they're covered. And that'll be something that'll be extension all through the Old and New Testament as well. The need for a, a clothing and then there's this symbolic idea of being clothed in Christ. And then in uh, Revelation, the clothing in the, the blood of Christ, the, the white robes that have been washed in the blood, this idea of the clothing. And even in the, the priests, we'll see that in the Old Testament. All right, so we've gotten up through chapter 2. We see that God is establishing now man and woman in his creation. He's established them together. He's made them one. I said we would talk at some point uh, about this issue of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll really get into that in the first verses in chapter 3. We don't have time to do that with the time that's left for us today. I don't want us to, to skip over that aspect, though, and James is going to talk to me a little bit afterward about this question of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll definitely get into some of that tomorrow morning, uh, Lord willing. Uh, we'll be here. Uh, 1030 is the, is the worship or the Bible class? The class time. The class time at 1030. And then I don't know what, what's planned exactly, but I've got enough material here that we can do the, the worship, the class and the, and the sermon, and then the afternoon if we want to just go straight through this. Of course, I'll leave that up to, to these guys who are organizing things here. 
Uh, and like I said, I've got the PowerPoints. If you want those, they go into much more detail. I'd be glad to continue uh, studying with you by email if you have some doubts after you look at the PowerPoints or some questions or some things to add. I'm grateful for those. Um, look forward to that. Thank you so much for, for the participation. I know it's hard to sit here for three hours and hear some guy stammering on, but these are wonderful texts, and they're so encouraging. It's fun. I think it's fun to go through these texts. We only got through two chapters, so we've got two more to look forward to tomorrow if you can make it. Any comments or questions, though, up through this point? I don't want to cut you guys off if you have something you'd like to, to question or to add. Wow. So perfectly explained. Either you didn't get it at all or you got it perfectly. <laughs> All right, well, if, if you want to talk with me about it after or whatever, certainly pick up a card back there. It's got my email and phone number. I'd love to, to keep in contact with you. Why don't we finish out with a word of prayer today? I'd like to ask Richard if he wouldn't mind to do that for us, and um, then we'll let you guys get home.